Well, today at the end of our time together, we're going to celebrate communion. So if you did not receive a set of communion elements, and if you would like a set when you came in, if you didn't pick one up, um, just hold your hand up high and a member of our host team, uh, they will be happy to bring those to you. Just hold them up high for a moment and give a chance for those um, host team members to come down front and to bring those to you. And I want to make sure that all of you know, uh, you've heard me talk about this last couple of weeks. If you have not already downloaded our app, our Church Center app, this goes for you at home who are listening as well. This is the best way to keep current with all the things that are happening here at Faith. And as we continue to, to reopen more and more every single week, this is the best way for you to stay current, for you to connect, and for you to engage with what's happening and what's taking place in this place and online. And so I would ask that you just take a minute, go to your app store and download the Church Center app. If you're here with us in Troy, if you need help setting that up after the service, there'll be people in the lobby who would be happy to do that with you. Now today we are beginning to come to the end uh, of our series called Upside Down Kingdom. And really, um, this whole series began with Easter because the resurrection of Jesus was the undeniable proof that God was up to something new in our world, that God was doing something in the world for the world. And throughout this series, uh, we've seen how Jesus is not an and, um, that really Jesus is an instead of, because Jesus came to replace um, pretty much everything that was in place. In fact, he came to introduce um, something brand spanking new, three very specific things, a new kingdom, a new covenant, and a new temple. And throughout his time on earth, as Jesus would travel around Judea and Galilee and what we think of as the Middle East, um, Jesus would drop these little hints, these little hints of the new that he had come to introduce. And he would say things like, um, you have heard it said, but now I say. A long time ago, it was once said, but now I say. And Jesus' audience, they would hear Jesus say this and they would think to themselves, or sometimes they would even say out loud, yeah, Jesus, we've heard it said because that's what our parents said, right? That's what their parents said. That's what Moses said. Jesus, who in the world do you think that you are? And Jesus would just smile and say, just wait, just wait. And in a religious world that valued outside appearances, external appearances, that valued physical cleanliness and physical purity above all else, Jesus insisted, everywhere he went, Jesus insisted on touching people who were unclean, touching people who were unholy. In fact, people would line up and they would wait for hours. They would be brought to Jesus and they would wait for hours and hours just for an opportunity to touch him. And every time they did, something new happened. Because everybody knows what happens when something dirty touches something clean, when something impure is mixed with something pure. Now both are dirty. Now there's even more impurity. But something brand new happened with Jesus. The unclean became clean. The unholy became holy. They were healed. They were restored. They were made new. It was just more proof that God was, in fact, up to something new for the world, that something new was on the horizon. But, of course, Jesus' upside-down kingdom and the values of his upside-down kingdom, those values would come into conflict. Wherever they would meet the kingdoms of this world, whenever the two would come together, there would always be trouble. Matthew tells us that one day, Jesus and his disciples are walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. They're moving from city to city. And his disciples are hungry, and so they began to pick some heads of grain and, and eat them. 
Now, everywhere that Jesus went, there's always a whole series of crowds that went along with him. And those crowds were filled with people who loved Jesus and people who hated Jesus and people who were just curious about Jesus and wanted to know more. And those crowds were also filled with Pharisees, people who just couldn't stand um, Jesus or the message that Jesus was bringing. And so when the Pharisees who were walking alongside Jesus saw the disciples start to do this, they looked at the disciples and they looked back at Jesus and they looked at the disciples and they said, okay, look, we got him. We got him. Jesus, don't you see what your, your disciples are doing? They're doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And so Jesus knows what's about to happen, and so he slows the crowd down, and he says, okay, and he waits for everybody to catch up because he knows there's going to be a little bit of a show. And so he looks at the Pharisees, and he says to them, listen, you know as well as I do that what my disciples are doing, um, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing in the law that says that you can't eat heads of grain on the Sabbath when you're hungry. You know that. And then Jesus, he actually throws their accusation right back in their faces and he says, but haven't, or haven't you read, is that maybe the problem is you haven't actually read the law. Haven't you read in the law that the priests themselves on Sabbath duty in the temple, they actually desecrate the Sabbath and yet they're innocent, right? The priests in the temple, the only people that you care about and the only place that you care about. Haven't you read that they, they are innocent even though they all work? On the Sabbath? You've got it all backwards, Jesus said. You think God actually loves his law more than he loves people. Because, see, that's what they did. They loved the law more than they loved the people the law was intended to protect, which is, in fact, legalism, right? Legalism always prioritizes a position over a person. And all throughout the Gospels, one of the things that we discover, the new that Jesus was bringing into this world, is whenever people Whenever people would try to use the law of God to dishonor people who had been made in the image of God, Jesus said there's always going to be conflict. Not just conflict with Jesus, no, conflict with God. And so this conversation, it goes back and forth and back and forth, and then Jesus, he he finally um, brings it to a conclusion by making this statement that we looked at together briefly last week. And he says to these Pharisees, he says, look, you're so concerned about the Sabbath. You're so concerned about the law. You're so concerned about all of these external things. Let me tell you what you should really be concerned with. Let me tell you what you should really be paying attention to. In fact, guys, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Something greater right? Something greater than the temple is here. Now, for Jesus to actually declare in this moment that he was greater than the temple, that was either arrogance or, or insanity or ignorance. But regardless of any of those things, it was, in fact, blasphemy because nothing was greater than the temple. And for a person to declare himself greater than the temple was actually a threat to the temple. And a threat to the temple was a threat to the nation. And Jewish people would do anything. They would die to protect their temple. There was nothing greater than the temple. In fact, just seven years after Jesus said this, in A.D. 40, Emperor Caliglia, right, one of my relatives, Emperor Caliglia, he decided that, you got it, good, he decided that he was actually going to put a statue of himself right into the middle of the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. Well, the Jewish people, they actually got wind of this plan. And so when the Syrian governor um, Petronius when he arrived at the coast to take possession of this statue with his, all of his troops and his armed forces, right, they were met by thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish people who were intent on stopping this from happening. 
And when Petronius threatened all of these Jewish people with violence, instead of fighting back, they simply kneeled down, pulled down their collars on their robes, and exposed their necks to the Romans as if to say, you can kill us all right now, but we will not let anything desecrate our temple. Something greater than the temple, Jesus? I don't think so. And see, for us to understand why this temple meant so much to these Jewish people, we have to first understand what exactly a temple is. Now, we talked about this very briefly in the first week. A temple is where heaven and earth actually overlap. A temple is where these two spaces that we encounter in the Scriptures, heaven and earth, it's where they overlap. All throughout the Scriptures, we are told about God's space, heaven, and our space, earth. And God's space is filled with God's presence, His grace, His goodness, His love. And our space on earth is filled with sin and injustice and all the travesties that come as a result of that. And even though these these two places are different, That does not mean that they are always separate. In fact, occasionally they overlap. And where they overlap is a temple. Now, this is also why when you read through the Old Testament, if you pay attention carefully, you'll find that God gives very, very specific instructions about how he wants the temple to be decorated. That he wants there to be specific carvings of fruit trees, and and he wants precious stones. He wants um, carvings and pictures of angels and lots of gold and, and jewels all throughout the temple because each of these is meant to remind the people in the temple of the Garden of Eden, that place where God's space and human space once fully overlapped, where there was, in fact, no separation where God could actually be with the creatures that had been made in his image. This is why the temple is so important to the Jewish people, because the temple is their connection back to God. But, and this is Jesus' point, the Jewish people had begun to do the temple the very same thing that they had done to the law. They began to prioritize the law over the people the law was made to protect, and they had begun to love the temple more Then they loved the one who the temple was supposed to connect them to, which was in fact easy to do because the temple was extraordinary. In fact, this is a model. This is a a, a picture of what the temple looked like. The, The temple, this entire thing collectively, the temple and then the mount that it was on, was known as the Temple Mount. And the entire thing occupied a space of about 30 acres and it was all made of cut stone on the top of Mount Moriah. These walls rise about 100 feet over the valley below, and then the temple itself is another 60 feet above that foundation. And the temple, as beautiful as it was, as ornate as it was, with all of the gold, all of the carvings, all of the imagery of of angels, and all of these things that were meant to remind people of the Garden of Eden, the thing that actually made the temple and the temple mount one of the ancient wonders of the world, was in fact that incredible mount that it sat on. 30 acres of land, think about that, 30 acres of space all flattened on the top of Mount Moriah, all of it made by hand with cut stone. Cut stone. These massive stones, many of which were as large as 45 feet long, 16 feet wide, and weighed as much as five hundred tons a piece, hundreds of them, right? Something greater than the temple, Jesus? (laughs) I don't think so. 
Soon after, soon after this, Jesus and his disciples are back at the temple, and they're leaving the temple. They're coming down the temple steps. They're going into the valley below. And one of the disciples stops, and he says to Jesus, he says, look, teacher, what massive stones, right? What magnificent buildings. You've experienced, we've all experienced this, right? There, there are some buildings that you see, and even though you've seen them many, many, many times, you just cannot get over what it is that you're looking at. How amazing it is that they even built such a thing, how big it is, how, how much splendor it has. Right? All of us have experienced these types of, of buildings. Every time the disciples saw the temple, they thought to themselves, how in the world did they just get these, how did they get all these stones, these massive stones, all the way up on top of a mountain? How in the world did they stack them on top of each other so precisely? How in the world did they carve stones that were 500 tons apiece? How in the world did they do all that? And so the disciples, they stop to, to admire and to just take in the magnificence of this building because they, they just can't imagine it. And so they ask and they say to Jesus, look, look at these massive stones. Look at this magnificent building. And Jesus knows what they're doing. And he stops and he looks at his disciples. And then he looks over at the temple. And he looks back at his disciples. And what he says next, I am telling you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, right? if your whole issue when it comes to believing Jesus um, is proof, like verifiable, um, undisputable proof, right? if that's the issue for you, I just want you to lock in on what I'm going to say for the next couple of moments. Because what I'm about to tell you is absolutely extraordinary. In fact, I would love it if you would actually fact-check me on all of this, if this is, if this is what is, is significant to you, if you need more proof, I want you to look into this more for yourself. Because Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples and he says to them, do you see? You see all these magnificent buildings, these great buildings, Jesus replies, not one stone Right? Not one stone. All these stones, we wonder, how did they carve them? How did they transport them? How did they stack them? How massive are these stones? Not one single stone, none of them, not one will be left on another. Every one, Jesus said, will in fact be thrown down. Now, Jesus uses a very, very interesting and a very specific word here. It's the Greek word katalethe. And see, this is not what you and I would say. If we were saying the statement, we would say this. We would say, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will fall down. But that's not what Jesus says because that's not what Jesus means. See, fall down is easy, right? Fall down is the result of an earthquake. Fall down is the result of neglect. Fall down is just simply the result of the passage of time. But Jesus chooses a very specific and a very, very different word, a word that's only used two times in the entire Bible. That's how specific Jesus is about what he's saying, and it means exactly what it says right here, thrown down, as into the valley below, as in all the stones, including the stone of the Temple Mount, it will be, they will all be thrown off the side of the mountain. Now, the problem is this, right? You can't throw down the temple. Right? An earthquake could perhaps topple a parapet. Right? An earthquake might um, cause a crack in the floor or maybe in a ceiling someplace. You might have to repair some damage. 
But not even an earthquake could throw down every single one of these massive, massive stones into the valley below. It would take an army to do that. And there was only one army in the world that was that powerful. It was the Roman army. But the Romans are the ones who helped to build this whole thing just a few years earlier, just 20 years before Jesus, all for the express purpose of making their front man, Herod, more appealing to the Jewish people and to keep the Jewish people in line, to ingratiate Herod to these Jewish religious leaders and these Jewish, Jewish people. The Romans were the ones who actually did the construction. The Romans were the ones who supplied the money and the labor and the skill and the material, all for the express purpose of keeping the Jewish people peaceful. They were not about to do anything. Anything to upset the temple or to upset the people that they so desperately wanted to remain calm. Jesus, are you sure that's what you meant? Every stone will be thrown down? Like, Jesus, maybe we misunderstood something. I mean, that would be the end of everything. And so Jesus and the disciples, they leave the temple, they walk into the valley below. On the other side of the valley of the temple, of the valley of Kidron, is the Mount of Olives. And so they make their way down the steps across the valley, and as they're coming up the valley on the other side, as they're heading into the Mount of Olives, the disciples are just, they're just so disturbed by what Jesus just said to them. Because they remembered that not long ago, Jesus actually said that he was greater than the temple. And that's weird. Like, that's weird. And now, Jesus, you're saying that that not parts are going to fall off. No, you're you're saying um, this whole thing this whole massive thing, you're saying that it's going to be thrown into the valley below? I mean, Jesus, that, 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 would, be, that would be the end of everything. And they just can't stop thinking about what Jesus says. And so as Jesus, verse 3, Matthew, Mark tells us, as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking over the valley, at the temple in the sunlight. Peter, James, John, Andrew, they asked him privately. I mean, they they just had to know, right? This was too weird. They couldn't just let this one go. They had to know. This was way too disturbing to ignore. They just had to know when. When is all of this actually going to happen? And so Jesus... Jesus told them. And see, I would love for you today, sometime later today, maybe during the course of this week, for you to actually get a Bible or download a Bible and you go to Luke chapter 21 and you read for yourself what it is that Jesus said about the days in which this event would happen. Because Jesus goes into great detail and he says, listen, okay, guys, you will know that what I've told you is about to happen when you see the following things take place. When you see an army begin to surround the city, um, when that happens, Jesus said, that you will know that everything I've told you is about to happen. And when that happens, you should leave the city. You should take everything with you and you should get it out of the city. You should pray that there are no nursing mothers anywhere in the city when you see this happen. You should pray that, that there are no mothers anywhere in the city of of Jerusalem when this is about to happen because when you see what I've told you happening then the end is here and it will be awful and it will be the end there will be so many people Jesus says that will die by the sword so many men who will die by the sword that it will all be over 
And if you actually read this for yourself, what you will discover is that Jesus is, is in no way exaggerating, that he is very upset, he is very um, concerned, that he is not in any way speaking figuratively, and he is being very, very specific about what eventually would take place. But he is in no way exaggerating. Forty years after Jesus said this, I told you this date last week, A.D., August 6th, A.D. 70, 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, right, 40 years later, what Jesus said would happen did happen. After about five years of, of a series of ongoing skirmishes between um, Jewish gangs and, and various Roman forces, these Jewish gangs actually won a, a very decisive and a very surprising victory over an entire Roman legion. And that region, uh, that, 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 that victory gave um, the, the Jewish people the, the momentum that they needed to start, um, to start raising armies all throughout Judea. And so Rome, as a response to this, sent in legion after legion after legion of soldiers to round up all these rebels from Galilee all the way south into Judea, and then finally, eventually, they got them all into the city of Jerusalem. And once they got them into the city of Jerusalem, they began to build a series of stone walls surrounding the entire city, and then they built siege works on top of that wall, and then they sealed the city so that nothing could get in and nothing could get out. And then what happens next is truly terrible because the Jewish people fought with the Romans by day and they fought with each other by night. And after everything in the city was either dead or sold off into slavery, the 10th legion of Rome came into the city and they literally, right, you can look this up on the internet, you can fact check me on Google on this, they literally took every stone from the temple as well as the temple mount and they threw all of them into the valley below to let the world know that Judaism was over. In fact, 2,000 years later, if you go to this site today, this is what you'll see. Not one stone left on another. August 6th, A.D. 70, on that day, ancient Judaism died, never to be resurrected, just as Jesus predicted. Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, we're going to pause here for just a moment, and for those of you who have kind of tuned out or you went to go get something to eat, just come on back for a minute, because what I'm going to say to you next is a little bit complicated, but it is oh so important. After the first generation of apostles and disciples died out or were killed, um, af after they were martyred, right? So Peter, Andrew, James, um, uh, John was actually left on the island of Patmos to die. Uh, Matthew, Thomas, they're all martyred. After that first generation of, of followers of Jesus and apostles are, are killed or martyred, um, the people who end up leading the church are collectively known as this, as the church fathers. And these men, these people, um, were very quick to do exactly what we're doing today. They looked at this event and they said, okay, it happened. 
Right? It happened just as Jesus predicted that it would happen. Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be because how in the world could someone predict something so specific and so big and so obvious and yet also so incredibly easy to verify? Jesus must be who Jesus claimed to be because Jesus said it would happen and it did happen and we can actually verify that it happened. But see, here's the interesting thing, and this is the part where if you're not sure um, about Jesus, you don't believe in Jesus, you have questions about Jesus, this is the part that should just kind of make you you, you pause for a moment because this is the part you have to wrestle to the ground. Why in the world, right, why in the world do the gospel writers themselves not do the very same thing? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the four gospel writers, all of them record this event. All of them record Jesus' prediction about this event. They all of them include the detail and the prediction about what Jesus said would happen to the temple and what would happen to Jerusalem. So why in the world do they not simply add one little statement to their account? Something like, it happened. It happened just as Jesus said that it would happen. Because see, the truth is, if you read through the Gospels carefully, we actually find the disciples doing stuff like this all the time. Right? They constantly editorialized on the accounts of Jesus' life because Jesus would often say something or do something and the disciples will record it in the Gospels and will read something like, um, Jesus told this parable but they didn't understand it at the time. Or Jesus told this illustration but it didn't make any sense to the disciples until after Jesus' death and resurrection. They constantly editorialized because they were looking back on what Jesus said and what Jesus did, and then they were writing about that, and they were writing about the implication of that now that they were on the other side of Jesus' death and his resurrection. So why in the world would they not just simply add the statement, it happened? It actually happened. We didn't believe it at the time. We didn't know what Jesus was talking about at the time. We didn't understand it, but it happened just the way Jesus said that it would. And see, The answer to this question is what should make every single one of us pause for a moment and declare that Jesus, he really is the Son of God. Because listen, when Mark wrote his gospel, the temple was still standing. That's why he doesn't say anything about it. When Matthew wrote his gospel, the temple was still standing. Matthew includes the prediction, but he doesn't include the fulfillment of the prediction because it hadn't happened yet. When Luke wrote his gospel, the temple is still standing, right? Luke, the person who says, "Um, I have carefully checked out all the details surrounding the life of Jesus, and I've recorded all of them for you so that you could know exactly who this Jesus person is. Luke, who says that, um, he wrote his gospel while the temple was still standing. Now, why does all this matter? Right? Here's the problem. Because when you were in school, or if you're in college right now, when you take a class in world history, or if you ever take a class in world religion, then you were likely told, or you will, will be told, that the Gospels were not actually written by eyewitnesses, that they were written many, many, many years later after the fact by people that we don't know their real names. They were just impersonating these guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, here's again why that matters, right? Because the reason they say that, the reason they say they couldn't have been written during the, the, by the eyewitnesses themselves um, is because of this very prediction that we're looking at together today. Because if Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple with the detail that is recorded in here and it wasn't added after the fact 
then that is actually verifiable proof. It is undisputable proof that Jesus is in fact worth following. Matthew didn't include it because it hadn't happened yet. Mark didn't include it because it hadn't happened yet. Luke didn't include it because it hadn't happened yet. But it happened. It happened just as Jesus said that it would. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. It is the most verifiable prophecy ever given anywhere by anybody. And the point, the point of all this The point was obvious. Jesus is telling us that God is up to something new. Something new in the world for the world. That the days of animal sacrifice, the days of temple sacrifice, the days of God having a covenant with only one nation, all of those were coming to a close. That God was doing something new in the world for the world. And he was about to do something better, something for all nations, something for all people. The temple wasn't going away. Don't miss this. Because after all, Jesus is here to reunite heaven and earth. No, the temple is just getting smaller. It's just getting mobile. Twenty years after Jesus makes this prediction... 20 years after this, the Apostle Paul, the former Jesus-hating, Jesus-persecuting Pharisee, he writes a letter to these brand new followers of Jesus living in the city of Corinth, and he says to them, do you not know, right, because they didn't know, do you not know, he said, that your bodies, your physical bodies are, in fact, now temples of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit who used to only inhabit that place in Jerusalem, that building the Apostle Paul could have said that is still standing but now empty because the Holy Spirit has now left the building and he now inhabits the hearts of men and women who follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit who is in you, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. And see, unfortunately, right, unfortunately for many of us, the significance of these words and the implication of these words have been lost on us. But what the Apostle Paul is explaining, the reason why Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven on earth is because now through Jesus there would no longer simply be just one temple. Now the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus is that anywhere there is a follower of Jesus, there is an overlapping, there is an overlapping of heaven and earth. Anytime there is a follower of Jesus, there is a temple which is helping to reunite heaven and earth, helping to reunite a father with the children that he loves, reunite a world that has been separated from him. From now on in Jesus' brand new upside-down kingdom, there would be no more sacred objects, there would be no more sacred places, there would be no more sacred geography. From now on in Jesus' kingdom, sacred would only be used to describe people. That right now you are sitting next to sacred. You are married to sacred. You are raising sacred. You live with, you work for, you hire sacred. 
Because the Holy Spirit of God himself now lives in the hearts of men and women. With the arrival of Jesus' upside-down kingdom, little did the world know that God was signaling something new, not just simply for the religious world, no. But with the arrival of Jesus, the seeds had in fact been sown for the end of slavery, for the end of sexual exploitation, for the raising of dignity not only of all mankind, but even more importantly, all womankind as well. Because see, there is an inextricable link There is an inextricable link between the message of Jesus and your value, your worth, the price that Jesus paid for you on the cross. There is an inextricable link between the message of Jesus and human freedom and the price that he declared that every single person who ever walked this earth, regardless of their ethnicity, their gender, regardless of anything, all of them, All of them are precious and made in the image of our Heavenly Father. Something greater than the temple, Jesus? Yes. Something greater was here. And it was about to release the love and the light of our Heavenly Father into this world. And see, here's where this intersects with you and with you and and with me. Here's where this message still matters because there are so many people, there are so many people in this world who need to be reunited with their heavenly father. And Jesus' original invitation into his kingdom, it still stands. It still stands. Jesus said, follow me, follow me, follow me into my heavenly father's upside down kingdom. Follow me into this place where God is doing something new. Something for you. Heavenly Father, it's so easy, especially for those of us who um, these words are familiar to, It's so easy for us to miss the significance of what you've actually done through Jesus, to think think that we now, as people, as frail, sinful people, that we would now be the place where your spirit would choose to dwell. Father, I pray for every single one of us that we would be reminded, especially now, especially in our world right now, that there is not a single person that we will ever meet. There is not a single individual that we will ever lock eyes with, that we will ever talk to, that we will ever see, that we will ever disagree with or fight with, Jesus, that you did not die for. And so, Jesus, I pray that that truth would not be lost on any of us. If our sin could not keep you from loving us and from dying for us, then, Jesus, why in the world? Why in the world would we ever let anything separate us or give us an excuse to love each other less 
than how you, Jesus, have loved us. And so I ask Jesus that in these next few moments that you hear each of us as we personally and silently confess our sin to you. The good news of the gospel is that our Father, our Heavenly Father, He is always at work. That He is always working to make a way. That Jesus never gives up. He never turns away. He never turns His back. Jesus, that You died in our place. That You promised to give us what we don't deserve. That You promised to give us grace and love and forgiveness. Jesus, that you actually entrust us as frail, sinful people. You entrust us with the good news of grace for everyone, everywhere. And so the good news of the gospel, Jesus declares to you today, your sin, it is truly forgiven. In Jesus' name.